Good to be with y'all, some of y'all, appreciate that. And uh, we're grateful to be together today to worship together. I want you to take your Bible, hopefully you brought a Bible with you. If you didn't, that's okay. And turn to Luke 16, Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. We're going to look at a parable today. We've been in a series of messages on the parables, which I have loved doing. We're about halfway through this series, looking at various parables. There are a number of them. And I do want to say to those of you who have mentioned this, I know that, well, one, we have this incredible booklet that our team made that I think is helpful, but I know you're missing your fill in the blanks. All right. So um, we love all people here, especially our OCD tendency people. And our Christmas gift to you will be once the series is over, get back to your fill in the blanks. You can be filling those out for the glory of God. And we can't wait in a few weeks, but we appreciate your patient endurance with us until, until that time. Jesus talked in parables for a number of reasons, not just because we like stories, but Jesus used parables, extended analogies, if you will, to help us to see the things God wants us to see, to hear what God wants us to hear, and to do the things that God wants us to do. Parables had a way of both disarming people into receiving truth, but Jesus also reserved some of his harshest teachings, his most pointed, somewhat controversial teachings for parables. And the parable we're going to look at today in Luke 16 is a, it's a punch in the nose. It's a harsh saying. And we want to be the kind of church that takes seriously these serious teachings of Jesus. We live in serious times. And that doesn't mean that We can't have playful moments, joyful moments, but these are serious times that we live in. We want to take the teachings of uh, Jesus seriously. We want to be living serious lives for Jesus. We want to be praying for the things that Jesus calls us to pray for, doing the things that Jesus calls us to do. I know my heart this week has certainly been somber with the events of the world today. We're all watching that unfold, and who knows what is to come in the days ahead. This may simply be the beginning of a very long, drawn-out war in the Middle East. We want to be praying for our brothers and sisters there. We have, as a church, we have several ministry partners in Israel of all ethnicities. Some are Messianic Jews, some are Arab Israelis, some are Palestinian, but they all are believers in Jesus. And this is an incredibly challenging time for them, for their families, but also an incredible opportunity to be bold for Christ. I think about in Acts 4 when those persecuted believers prayed, God, not for their safety, they prayed in the midst of persecution that they would be bold. And I pray that we are people who are bold in the proclamation of Christ. I pray that we are a peaceful people. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And we want to be lifting up that whole situation and trusting the Lord that his will is perfect and that he is doing something in this time. Jesus, in this parable, is going to flip the script. He is interacting with a group called the Pharisees, and we've seen them a number of times. And to understand the parable in Luke 16, we really have to understand the context of what he's doing. So I want us to look at the context of this parable, which is found in Luke 16. We're going to start in verse 14, 14 and 15. And these really get to the heart of what Jesus is talking about and to whom he's talking 
And we need to understand these and really understand this parable. So if you are physically able, let's read these two verses. Would you stand up? I'd love to read these with you. And let's see what Jesus says to the Pharisees and indirectly to us today. This is the comment that Luke makes the author in verse 14. Now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were ridiculing them, or him, I should say. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of people, but God knows your hearts. Because that which is highly esteemed among people is detestable in the sight of God. Father, we come to you opening up this word and challenged immediately with the thought that maybe we are like the Pharisees. Maybe we have a love for money that blinds us to what you want us to see. Maybe we are motivated more by what people think of us than what you think of us. And it is horrifying to read this, that God, you find that detestable. So speak to us today, God, not just fill our minds with an interesting story from 2,000 years ago, but convict us, change us, motivate us, encourage us to live out the things of Jesus. We're going to pray that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. In Luke 16, Jesus tells two parables back to back, both of which are about money. They both start with the phrase, there was a rich man. And, and Jesus, in this parable about a rich man, is going to flip the script on the Pharisees, who many people look to as someone worth following. You know, flip the script. You know, that means like to change direction, to change momentums. Like things were going this way, and then, oop, the script is flipped, and we're going this way. Like I thought, for instance, at the beginning of last week when I was studying this passage, getting ready to preach this today, I thought, this is going to be a perfect illustration. You know, the Phillies thought they were going to win the series, and the Braves had this incredible ending, that double play, 8-5-3 double play, and then they're going to come back. It didn't happen. Anyways, but Jesus flips this script on the Pharisees because he's talking about money. Now, this passage in Luke 16, 19 through 31 is going to talk about the afterlife. Many people think this is a passage primarily about hell, and it does involve hell, though that's not the point. I thought for a second, I'm going to name this title, the title of this message, Hell Yeah. I didn't do that. <laughs> hell question. Hell? Yeah. No, that's not what I was... Because that's not really the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, is money. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus talked about money a lot. People get uncomfortable when we talk about money. Maybe this is your first time here. And the, when we talk about money here, it makes you uncomfortable because it just brings up your own insecurities or some conviction about money, or maybe you've seen it abused or wasted. But Jesus talked about money a lot. And I think it's because money has a way of revealing what's in our heart, like, well, few other things. 
And we often think that we can serve both God and money, but Jesus says you have to make a choice. You cannot both serve God and money. And the Pharisees were lovers of money. Jesus made this comment in his first parable in Luke 16. He said in Luke 16, 10 through 11, the one who is faithful in a very little thing is also faithful in much, and the one who is unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true wealth to you? Isn't that an interesting phrase? According to God, there are different types of wealth. There is the wealth that we think is wealth, but then there's the true wealth, the wealth that God wants for us. And it's possible, this is what's so scary, it's possible to have earthly wealth and yet not have the true wealth that God wants us to have. And that was the case of the Pharisees that Jesus often found himself in conflict with. The Pharisees are often seen in some ways as the villain of the story. In fact, when Jesus is on the scene, he's like the hero and the Pharisees are the villain. Every time we see the Pharisee in the scripture, we should hear music in our ears. The Pharisees, dun, dun, dun. But if you lived 2,000 years ago, you would have looked up to the Pharisees as good, moral, hardworking, godly people. Who, who are the Pharisees? Let's do just a very quick overview. Who are they? The Pharisees, they were the separated ones. In fact, the Hebrew word where we get Pharisee, the root word of it means to divide or separate. And by that, they meant they were holy. They were different than the world, separated unto God. They were laymen. They weren't priests, everyday people, but they were known for their commitment to the scriptures. These were good Bible people, people who took the scriptures seriously, memorized it, meditated upon it, taught upon it. But the problem was that they, they often taught an expanded oral law that they themselves did not hold to. So where the Bible was not crystal clear, they would fill in the gap with their own man-made teachings. And even that, Jesus said they were hypocrites because they didn't keep up with their own teachings that they, that they taught others. There are famous Pharisees in the New Testament, people like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, who appears in the Easter story, and then the most famous is probably Saul, who was radically converted to Christ and changed his name to Paul and became really the, the first sent one, if you will, uh, in the New Testament. He was a Pharisee. What did the Pharisees teach? Several things. Here's three that are important to this parable Jesus is going to tell in Luke 16. Number one, they taught that, that their salvation was based on this ethnic lineage to Abraham. Now, we don't feel that because most of us did not grow up in Jewish households, but many of them taught that they were righteous with God, good with God, because if they trace their ancestors all the way back, it, it ends up with Abraham. And Abraham was their father. Therefore, if Abraham's their father, we are good with God. Jesus often, often confronted them on that. Number two, they taught the law of retribution, which is a way of saying, hey, if you do good on this earth and you have good things, then when you go to the next life, you're going to be treated well and you'll have nice things. Conversely, if you don't do good on this earth and, and you don't you know, do nice to people and you don't have good things, you're certainly not going to have those. God, in a sense, owes you what you do for him. And the Bible often talks about sowing and reaping, but we need to be very careful that we never think that we are the ones in charge 
of what God should or could grant or give us. God is always the one who's supreme in that. And number three, they believed in the resurrection and the afterlife. This is, makes them different than the Sadducees, another group that did not believe that. And all this is going to be important in this parable because Jesus is talking to a bunch of godly religious people who have let wealth blind them to what God ultimately wants them to do. And I think this is true for every single person in this room. We live in a very affluent community. It's a wonderful community, but we have our own particular struggles, particularly with wealth. And maybe Jesus is speaking to us in this parable today. Let's look at this parable. Think about what it might have meant 2,000 years ago. And then we'll do a little reflection about what it might mean for us today in 2023. So let's look at the parable. Verses 19 through 21 is where we get the first scene of the parable, and Jesus introduces two characters in the story. Verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day, and a poor man named Lazarus. He was laid at the gate, covered with sores, Not only that, the dogs, or excuse me, and longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table, not only that, the dogs also were coming and licking his sores. So we have two characters. We have the rich man, and who's the other one? Lazarus. Let's talk about the rich man. Jesus is making up this story. It's a parable. And in his story, we got this rich guy. And this rich guy is known for two things. Number one, he habitually dressed in purple. Now, that doesn't mean that It's wrong to wear purple, but in those days and time, purple was a very expensive fabric. It came from a very rare and expensive dye that was hard to do. It was very expensive, so only the elite could afford to wear this kind of purple. I'm sure this man has a closet full of purple. And not only that, he was wearing purple, but he was dressed in fine linen and enjoying himself in splendor every day. Can't you imagine his lifestyle? He had the nicest clothes. He had so much food, threw the best parties, drove the nicest chariots. This guy was on the you know, top 100 Israelites. You know, everyone wanted to be this guy. Rich, looked up to in the world. And Jesus is going to compare this rich guy with another man who was just a few feet away but had a vastly different life. What was his name? Lazarus. What do we know about Lazarus? Well, it says of Lazarus that he was poor. Unlike the rich man, he didn't have any earthly wealth. And he was laid at the gate of this rich man, which is to say that he must have been handicapped in some way, limited in some way. Maybe this was from his own malnourishment or something else. He was covered with sores, longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. He loved it when trash day came because they would take the trash from the house out to the street and, and maybe then he would get just a few scraps of these parties that this rich person would throw. If he could just, just have a little bit of comfort from that food. And it said that his only source of comfort actually was from dogs that came and, and licked his sores. We don't, we don't feel this story in the way that they would have 2,000 years ago because we don't view dogs the way they did. In our culture, we love dogs. I love dogs. A lot of you love dogs. I've seen you love your dogs. People take their dogs everywhere. Some of y'all take your dogs to restaurants. That's weird. But people take their dogs all kinds of... We love our dogs, right? And in our day and time, you know, dogs are like, they're on top. We love dogs. Dogs go to heaven, cats go to hell. You know, everyone knows that, right? 
I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My girls, every time I say that, well, how can you say that? You think our cat's going to hell? I'm like, no, our cat's going to heaven, but they're all y'all's cats going to hell. Anyway. But dogs in that time, they were unclean animals. It's very similar to how Jesus talked about in the prodigal son. You remember this last week? He talked about how he longed to be fed from pigs. Pigs to a Jewish boy, those are unclean animals. Dogs in that day and time, they were scavengers, feral animals, unclean. And, and so he's painting a picture. The only comfort this poor man has at the gate is being licked by an unclean animal. So vastly different lives. Jesus is contrasting this, but, but, the moment they die, they go in two radically different directions. Let's read the rest, verse 22 to 31. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he raised his eyes, this is a rich man, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child. Remember that during your life, you received your good things, and likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set, so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able, nor will any people cross over from there to us. And he said, then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so they will not come to this place of torment as well. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So immediately we have two different outcomes. When Lazarus died, few people probably noticed it. Maybe they saw a lifeless corpse, kicked it a few times. And maybe they came and did what they did with poor people. They threw them in a mass grave. But don't you know the rich man had a big funeral? People got off work. People came from miles away to honor him for his great benevolence and his dignity and and the fact that he was the name that he was. And they had two totally different funerals. And yet the second after they die, we see that Lazarus goes into the arms of Abraham and the rich man goes to Hades. Now, I need to say this because this passage in no way teaches that your eternal destination is based upon whether you are rich or poor. There are plenty of wonderful, rich, godly people who will spend eternity with God through Christ, and there are plenty of godless, poor people who will spend eternity in hell because they rejected the grace of Christ. But that's Jesus', Jesus point is not about how we get into heaven or hell. Jesus' point is the connection between our wealth and the missed opportunities that we have right in front of us. 
The rich man goes to hell. Lazarus goes to heaven. Interesting, by the way, that Lazarus has something the rich man didn't have. You know what that is? He has a name. You ever notice we never learn the rich man's name? He's just, he's just rich guy. That's all he is in the story, rich guy. And Lazarus, whose name means God helps, goes. And then this conversation happens between Abraham and between the rich man. Interesting, by the way, that if you remember, the Pharisees taught that they were good with God because of their connection to Abraham. In this story, the rich man never pleads to God, never asks God for help. Who does he talk to? He talks to Abraham. I think Jesus is making a point. And what what does he say to Abraham? Abraham. Well, in 24, the rich man says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I'm in agony. I'm in agony in this flame. See the reversal? On earth, the only thing that comforted Lazarus was the smallest of crumbs from this rich man's table. In eternity, the only thing that he thinks will comfort him is the smallest of a drop of water from the tip of the finger of Lazarus. And even in hell, the rich man still is treating Lazarus as someone less than him, a servant. That's all he sees Lazarus as. Send him to serve me. Send him to comfort me. Send him to comfort my agony. I love what C.S. Lewis says, though it's a, it's a harsh saying, but C.S. Lewis said this about hell. He said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. What is hell? Hell is the time and place when God finally removes his hand off of your life. And he lets you be you. And it's a place of torment, of agony, and pain. Abraham, in Jesus' story, speaks to the rich man about this reversal of fortune. In 25, he says, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. You see see how Jesus is flipping the script here? I mean, what Lazarus was in the old life, poor, you rich man have become an eternal life, poor in God. What you rich man did not provide Lazarus in the old life, which was nothing, he cannot provide you in the eternal life, which is nothing. Lazarus can't do anything for you now. The rich man's extravagant wealth on earth has produced a spiritual poverty in the eternal life. There is no mercy in the eternal life for those who show no mercy in this life. Daryl Bach is the name of a scholar. He wrote a great commentary on Luke. As I was studying it this week, I thought this passage summed up what Jesus is getting at so well. He said this, the rich man is not condemned because he is rich but because he slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. He became consumed with his own joy, leisure, and celebration, and failed to respond to the suffering and need of others around him. His callousness made his earthly riches all he would receive from this life. And Abraham says, it's too late. In fact, there has been a chasm that has been fixed. Isn't that interesting? that in Jesus' story about the afterlife, once they get into eternity, there's a chasm that you cannot cross. There is no bridge that you can build to cross over from one to the other, which is, by the way, why the Bible never, ever mentions anything close to teaching on purgatory or some type of eternal lobby that you get to go to, where then 
you can decide whether you want to go to heaven or to go to hell. No, after this life comes the judgment. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, this rich man, seeing his fate, thinks about his brothers who are living in the same way. And so he says, then I request you, Father, you send in my father's house. I got five brothers. They're all living in purple. They're all throwing parties. They're all, they're all wealthy. They're all extravagant. Send him to them so that they would not come to this place of torment as well. Every time I read that, I think about the story I heard about this guy. Um, he went to this small Midwestern school, very conservative school. He did not like this school. Well, the school had this big annual that they would do, and they used it for publicity for the school. And so the seniors would have this whole page where they would write how much the school meant to them, and they'd pick out a Bible verse. This is the verse that just talks to me how much the school meant to me. This, this kid did not like the school, so he used this as verse, Luke 16, 20. Uh, 7 and 28, when he spoke of the school. So they read his life first. It said, Father, send him to my father's house in order that he may warn them so they will not come to this place of torment as well. (laughs) Do Do you see what Jesus is doing? In this story, the rich man is now coming to see the error of his ways. The blinders, in some sense, are being taken off. Jesus is telling this parable about Pharisees who had such a love of money that they were blinded and could not see what God wanted them to see. So the conversation goes on. Abraham says to him, verse 29, speaking of his brothers, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. See, the Pharisees always wanted signs. I mean, yeah, they were Bible people, but they wanted signs from Jesus. Prove that you are the Messiah. Prove that you are God. Do some miracle. Do something that's going to be spectacular. Do something I can, I can share on my social media. God, do something amazing. And you know what Jesus said about their desire for signs? He called them, he called them a wicked and adulterous generation. Always wanting signs. One of the great miracles Jesus did, I guess all the miracles are great by definition, but the one that really sticks out to me is that time that Jesus resuscitated Lazarus from being dead. Remember that? Four days, he was dead. And, and, he, and he brought Lazarus back out of the tomb and breathed life in him again. And, and do you remember what the Pharisees did after they saw that? They didn't bow their knee and go, oh, well, this is the author of life. He can, he can literally bring someone back from the dead. You know what they did? So they plotted to kill him and Lazarus. Always wanting signs, always wanting God to prove himself, always wanting for God to defend himself with signs and miracles and wonders. But Abraham said, no, 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 you have everything you need. You have Moses and the prophets. And then he condemns them with his final sentence. Verse 31. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Don't you think that foreshadowed the resurrection of Jesus? The ultimate act of him proving that he is God. When Jesus died on the cross, several criminals died on crosses 
What was different about Jesus is that he died on the cross not only to forgive our sins, but then he was buried. And three days later, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was raised to life, proving that he has the power and authority of death and life. And if we come to him, we can have eternal life with him. But even that, they would not believe. So this is a, this is a passage that condemns them for a callousness of heart that doesn't see a person right in front of them that they could serve and love in the name in the name of the God that they claim to love. So the question then is, what, what does this have to do with us? I mean, we're not, we're not Pharisees. We don't walk around with some of the same challenges. But what does this have to do with us in 2023? How do I, how do I apply this in my life, when I'm at school, when I'm at work? When I'm with my kids, my grandkids, I mean, how, how, do I, how do I think about this? I think there are several lessons from this parable. Let me offer three to you, and then and I want to end in a different way today. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus flips the script, and he teaches us, number one, that, that our salvation is not based upon our ethnic heritage. That was certainly the temptation for the Pharisees and the religious leaders who thought that they were good with God simply because of their ethnic lineage to Abraham. No, God says that we come to him by faith in Christ. In fact, Paul said this in Romans 1.16. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know why? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For in it, the Jew and the Greek are saved. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the righteous person will live by faith. That's the essence of Romans 1.16. And he says that, that we come to faith in Christ, Jew and Greek, and that is where our standing with God comes from. Not based on our religious heritage. I mean, let's be honest, y'all didn't grow up Jewish. Most of you didn't, so you don't struggle with going back to Abraham. But a lot of you think that you're good with God because you go to church or because your parents went to church, or your granddad was a pastor or something, and, and that's what you think gives you standing before God. Let me tell you something. You have zero standing before God without the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures point to Christ as the Messiah. The scriptures point to him as the deliverer. And that was so condemning that even Moses and the prophets, when read properly, point to this Messiah that Jesus so clearly exemplified. John 5, Jesus says this to Bible people. He says, you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is those very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So I, I, need, to, I need to ask you, what are you basing your standing before God on? Is it your heritage of your family? Or is it grace that you have received through faith in Christ? That's where our salvation is. Number two, what's another lesson from this story? It is that the ethical decisions that we make in this life will have eternal, unchangeable consequences. Eternal, unchangeable consequences. When this rich man went into the afterlife in Jesus' parable, he had to give an account 
for what he did or did not do with his time, talent, and treasure. Now, let me just reiterate this. We are not given standing before God because we're good people or do good things. But the Bible does teach us that we will have to give an account, even as believers, for what we did with our life, what we did with the opportunities that God gave us, what we did with the time that we had, what we did with the treasures that God puts in our, in our hands, what we did with our talents. We will have to give an account for that. And, and there will be a judgment, if you don't like the word judgment, an assessment that God will give. Thank you. That God will give. And he will even reward us based, based upon how we live this life. A lot of people think that, hey, you know, heaven's just about getting there by the skin of my teeth through the grace of God. I'm just grateful to be there. And I agree with that. I, I do agree with that. But the New Testament also teaches that, that what we do in this life has an impact on what we will do and what we will be given in the next life. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation, there's a word, for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. So how you living? The third lesson is probably the most pointed and the most harsh, and I think is exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate in this parable. It is this. Number three, the rich should examine how they use their wealth. One day we will have to give an account to God for what we did with the money that he gave to us. And we live, if we can just be real honest, we live in a very nice community. I love living in this community. I love pastoring in this community. I love that my kids are, great, are growing up in this community. But we live in a very affluent community, and there are a lot of haves here. And if we're not careful, we can get so insulated from the have-nots. And we can be blinded by our own wealth and not see the needs of people right at your gate, whether that's your front door or five, down, five miles down the road, or across the world where you see abject poverty. I wonder if, if we have gotten so inoculated and obsessed with our purple linen, linens and our extravagant lifestyle that we forget the heart of God for those without, and he wants us to be the hands and feet of Christ to them. I don't know what that looks like for you. Certainly, I, I think we should be giving to organizations that help those who are poor, but I also think that we don't need to hide behind our contributions and insulate ourselves from people that, that need the love of Christ, that need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So I think you should pray about what ways am I like the rich man in this story who was so calloused that he didn't take care of that which God had literally put at his gate? I'd like for you to pray about that this week, and I'd like you to think about what are ways that you and your family can minister to and love those who maybe have a different set of circumstances than you, all in the name of Jesus. And I want us to end today by praying together in a way that we don't typically pray together. I want us to pray a prayer of confession and repentance together as a church family.
Sometimes at this moment in the service, I'll ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and you talk to God on your own. I'm not doing that right now. In fact, I want us to pray out loud together by reading um, what I'm going to put in front of you, a responsive reading. And we want to end our services by confessing our sins to the Lord and then singing of His grace, compassion, and power that is found in Christ. And that's why we praise His name. So right now, would you stand together? And we're going to do a responsive reading. Pretty simple, where you see the word church, that is what you will read out loud. And I will read the part uh, beginning with pastor, and we'll all end together. And I pray that this is an act of confession and prayer for you as you examine your own time, treasure, talents, and what it is that God wants you to do. So let's go to the Lord in prayer together, and let's read well this collective prayer. Church, let's say together. Eternal God, we pray that we will make stewardship a way of life. We acknowledge you as the source of all we have and all we are. Help us to place you, our loving creator, first in our lives. Help us, Father, to become more powerful, more focused on loving and caring for our families and neighbors in need. And by becoming less preoccupied with material things. Help us to hear your call to be good stewards, caretakers, and managers of all your gifts by sharing them for your purposes. Forgive us where we have not made your priorities our priorities. Help us put our faith into action. Help us plan to give back the talents, treasures, and time with which we have been blessed. Help us plan to serve our church, our community, and our world with your gifts. May we serve you and pray with a joyful spirit of mind and heart. Amen. And now that we have confessed our sin, let's sing of our praise to the one who has forgiven us our sins.